0: Hi, and welcome to Ones and Twos, F.P.'s economics podcast. Every week we take a couple of data points. We use them to try to explain the world. I'm Cameron Abadi, F.P.'s deputy editor, with you from Berlin, Germany. As always, Adam Twos, F.P.'s economics columnist and Columbia University professor, is with us in New York. Hi, Adam. Hi, Cam. So, in the second half of the show, we will be talking about the Faroe Islands they were recently in the news because they have recently passed sanctions against russia um so stick around for that but uh we will move on first starting with the news data point the news data point for this week is 600 that is the number of public nuclear bunkers that the german government currently operates on its territory
1: Hallo Leute, wir besuchen heute
0: einen Bunker in Berlin und stellen euch die Arbeit des Vereins Berliner Unterwelten vor. That is less than the number it used to have and less than the number it would now like to have uh, ever since the war in Ukraine started. That has obviously increased fears across Europe, but also elsewhere in the world of a possible Nuclear war, sometimes that's an explicit object of discussion here in Europe, and uh, a lot of attention is being paid to where exactly people could shelter in the event of such a war. Actually, one of those former shelters is right next to where I am sitting right now. It's I live adjacent to a former nuclear bunker that has been decommissioned and now mostly sort of is overgrown with vegetation that is occasionally mode. Uh, um, But uh, I was hoping, yeah, we could talk about the general economics of nuclear bunkers. And so Adam, to start, do you have a general sense of the scale of nuclear bunker infrastructure that was built across Europe in the Cold War? I mean, and just generally how they were sort of distributed geographically?
1: Yeah, it's a horrifying trip down memory lane to be honest for somebody of my age my generation i was born in 67 so i i lived quite consciously through the final stages of the cold war and to be going back you know by way of google to the you know this time warped conversation about survival in the threat of under the you know the shadow of atomic weapons uh, thermonuclear weapons is, is really quite horrifying but i um, mean it turns out and it doesn't surprise me that germany has one of the lowest levels of shelter provision anywhere in in the west and this i think is probably a calculated idea that basically there was not much chance of survival anyway so there was no point in making preparations it's striking that the countries with the highest level of preparation in europe are all non nato members and it's rumored that they just did it because you know they weren't fully in the picture about how catastrophic the plans were of the war-fighting powers. So in ascending order, Austria has shelter capacity for 30% of the population, Finland for 70%, Sweden for 81%, and Switzerland for 114% of the population. It was mandated by law that houses in Switzerland should be constructed with basic ABC, atomic, biological, chemical, shelter capacity But what really kind of blew my mind was digging into this a bit more and discovering how prevalent it was in the United States. So New York, where I live, New York City in the early 1970s, had 18,000 designated fallout shelters that could house 11 million people. Now, these aren't the same as the massive bunker that you live opposite in Berlin or some of the World War II air raid bunkers that you see in Berlin. But these are specifically designated zones. The U.S. had a big civil defense program in the 1960s, which in total designated 195,000 structures across the country, capable of housing 187 million people. So the vast majority of the population. And and this this is the thing that really just completely set my mind whirring. Um, 109,000 buildings. The the property owners of those buildings permitted. Official black and yellow signs to be attached to their private properties to designate them as shelter facilities. So much of this is not private property; some of it is, though. Um, much of it is, you know, public spaces, school buildings with big basements, and so on. And of these, ninety-five thousand shelters were actually provided with basic medical and food supplies by the early nineteen seventies. So even in the United States, a country of you know privatization and private property. There was a very concerted effort through to the late 60s to actually provide basic shelter provision for the vast majority of the population.
0: Yeah, I mean, I recall also my own sort of middle school on Long Island when I was growing up had its own shelter, just sort of a a nuclear symbol with an arrow pointing down a set of stairs. You know, obviously we were never directed to go down there, but this kind of raises my next question, which is what percentage of these civil defense bunkers could be said to work in any real useful way. I mean, I I recall even then as a kid looking at that bunker and thinking, I'm not going to survive a nuclear war down there, right? I mean, I mean, what, what sort of spectrum do these bunkers run that were built in these years? I mean, in terms of their effectiveness?
1: Well, I mean, when it comes to radiation, all things are relative, I think, you know, none of it is best. And the aim of the game with uh, shelters is basically to cut the element of radiation or the dose of radiation that people were uh, going to be exposed to. And the critical variable here, it turns out, is density. I mean, I guess it's, you know, gamma rays going through matter. And so the more tightly packed the atoms are in the the matter, the more protection it provides. So the very best thing is lead because it's so dense, but concrete, you know, or sand or clay are all better than regular dirt. And there was an entire gradation issued by FEMA, the Federal Emergency Management Agency, and its counterparts all over the world, which measured so called radiation protection factors uh, or fallout protection factors, FPFs. And the minimum to classify as a fallout shelter in the United States was a FPF of, of 40. In other words, you had a 40 fold lower exposure than if you had been standing upright, um, exposed. So that basement in your school had been rated a minimum of 40. So you were a lot better off being down there than you would have been if you'd been standing on the pavement, a lot. Now, it probably wouldn't have extended your life, you know, if there was a series of massive thermonuclear blasts in Manhattan and Long Island, you would have been in pretty poor shape. But the estimates of this modeling, and it's, this is where it, you know it, the, the world of this planning is just grotesque. The aim of the American civil defense groups was to raise the average protection factor the minimum protection factor rather for this large scale shelters to one hundred, so basically to ensure that the people who were in these shelters would receive only one percent of the gamma ray exposure that ordinarily just be immediately lethal. And on that basis, they estimated it would save tens of millions of lives, this program. I mean, you know, in these calculations in which tens of millions of people die at the margin, I think the number I saw was that 25 million people's lives would be saved by this reduction in doses that was achieved by by sheltering. In practice, what this means is to achieve this, you know, the ideal is to bury a shelter about 10 feet deep in regular earth. But if you can layer on, you know, concrete, then even a modicum of concrete will generate a decent protection factor in a big New York high rise building. You know, not a giant one, but one that's 10 and 12 stories high. If you go down in the basement and it's a concrete line basement, you're already achieving that kind of 100 FPF protection level. Um, so if you survive the blast, you will receive on average, only about 1%. But you know, a very small amount of gamma rays are enough to do a large amount of damage.
0: Okay, Uh, pretty grotesque calculations that have to be made here. But good to know. I mean, basically, yeah, better to be in the basement than outside. Um, uh, This does raise the question of what was, I mean, I mentioned Germany sort of decommissioning lots of these nuclear bunkers. I mean, you're, you're talking about the sort of protection they provide in a catastrophic event i mean so what was the economic logic in decommissioning them then i mean what does it cost to maintain a bunker is it really so high that it made sense to stop doing so
1: well i have to say that i I did some googling on the on the caretaker janitorial costs of nuclear bunkers and came up empty um but um But what I did find was a really fascinating discussion in the British case in particular, because the British started out, I mean, having inherited a civil defence programme from World War Two, because the European countries, unlike the United States, were, of course, under intense bombardment in World War Two and all had uh, extensive experience, which was very analogous not to thermonuclear attack, but to atomic bomb attack. And the British, on the basis of the hydrogen bomb planning of the 50s and early 60s, basically decided to give up. So the British began shifting all of their civil defence preparations into the so-called care and maintenance category as early as 1969, because in light of the extent of the destruction they expected, they really couldn't see the logic in making large scale investment in bunkers. Obviously, as we've seen, many European countries in the United States pursue a more vigorous program, though the United States too also abandons the very active phase of of civil defense in the 1970s. There's a legacy program that runs on. What we see at the end of the Cold War is that the militaries sell these bunkers off, the existing military-grade bunkers that they had. So if you're a survivalist and you really, really, really want to be safe, the thing to buy is an abandoned Atlas or Titan ICBM missile silo in Kansas or Idaho or Oklahoma and you can buy them for 250 to 300,000 dollars a pop and those are installations built to withstand a near direct hit from a soviet missile so you know we're not talking fallout here we're talking the missile shelters that were built so that america had a second strike capacity so these are massively hardened deep deep buried into the ground And there's even a community out in the Black Hills of South Dakota, which is not missile based, but is based on an abandoned collection of ammo dumps that were sold off by the US military at the end of the Cold War. And and that's actually got capacity for 5000 people. You know, it's strategically located with zero seismic activity as far away from any body of water as you can be. It's literally calculated to be one of the safest places on Earth. And they have bunkers which are so strong that they will withstand blasts, not just from the outside, but from the inside. So if the ammunition blew up inside the bunker, the bunker would withstand the shock. That is a very strong structure indeed. <sighs>
0: Do, I, I'm guessing if you buy the, the missile silo, it does not come with the missiles, right? They're not-
1: Oh, no, 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 of course not. No, the missiles are all out. But the, the silo itself is an incredible you know piece of engineering because- I mean, obviously, they didn't credit with the Soviets with pinpoint accuracy, but they expected them to try and hit these silos.
0: Well, finally, um, I'm I'm curious, do governments have post-nuclear war economic plans? Do we have any idea about how we would go about rebuilding an economy at that point?
1: Uh, It's a totally fascinating question, the more you think about it, because it's the ultimate dystopia. And the fact of the matter is that governments in the 1950s had to plan for it. And I found this extraordinary law review article about the debates within the Eisenhower administration in the 1950s about the legal structure that would be used, how the American Constitution did not permit the kind of regulations that would be necessary after an all out thermonuclear war to manage what survived. It's absolutely, they literally did the, did the legal math on this. And they were forced to do it because initially, after World War II, you know, even even Nagasaki and Hiroshima, after all, recover. In fact, they fully recover. Um, they suffer huge trauma and you know, ghastly loss, but economically, they're to this day major powerhouses of the Japanese economy. Europe recovered as well, so there was a kind of optimism about bombing and recovery, but that was really silenced and squashed dead by the first calculations of what thermonuclear war. One can't exaggerate the difference between atomic and hydrogen bomb. And the Eisenhower administration started making plans for it. I mean, Eisenhower said that, you know, we would have to plan for running what was left of the United States as one giant, in his words, one giant camp. It would become a huge, planned, coercively organized economy. But wait for it. They actually had a debate about how to resolve property disputes after a thermonuclear war. So they they had an argument that said, you know, obviously, it's terribly unfair if Long Island and New York are sacrificed in a thermonuclear exchange. So there's going to have to be some compensation. They went back to civil war precedents to discuss whether or not families who lived on the front line between the north and the south were compensated for losses suffered during the civil war. It's, It's mind blowing stuff. And they concluded that for the duration as a confidence-building measure, they would allow the pre the existing de facto property order that emerged from thermonuclear war to persist. But they hoped that, they expected that in due course there would be a debate about how to compensate those who had suffered the maximum damage. I mean, that's how concrete, you know, literal, but also at some level, of course, just bizarre and macabre this this whole conversation became.
0: Yeah, I mean, and just I guess just to get back to the bunker I'm sitting right next to right now, I mean, just your description of the post nuclear scenario makes me wonder if I'd
1: even want to survive. There's a debate in the 1980s about whether the existing economic models of total nuclear war have factored in the behavioral coefficients. Which are what you're talking about right now. It's like people might just be a little bit depressed. Yeah, exactly.
0: Exactly. Well, there'd be boom times for therapy, I guess. Um, but um, okay, we will have to leave it there for now. But we will be right back to talk about the economics of the Faroe Islands. Hi, this show is sponsored by Better. Help. So there's something I've been meaning to get off my chest, and it has to do with uh, Little League. My son is on a uh, Little League baseball team here in Berlin, and the coach is—he's great. He's extremely devoted to the games, the practices. He also expects a lot of devotion from the parents, and I often end up feeling like I'm dropping the ball. I, you know, not literally, but you know, figuratively in terms of getting my son to practice on time, making sure he's prepared for practices, etc. And uh, I've been called out a few times. No, I, I've been more than a few times. Uh, pretty regularly, I am called out by this coach in, 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 in the form of text messages uh, admonishing me. And I've been meaning to tell the coach that, you know, life is busy and I can't always uh, hold up my end of the bargain and, 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 and it would be helpful if he would not be so pushy about everything. But I do not say that yet. Instead, I carry it around in my chest and this becomes a stressor. Uh, maybe you all have stressors of your own kind that you're carrying around, big or small. What we all should know is that if we keep these stressors bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively in all sorts of ways. And That is where therapy comes in. Therapy can be a safe space to get things off your chest. You can figure out uh, how to work through whatever it is that's weighing you down. And that's just skimming the surface of what therapy can do. And it isn't just for those who have experienced major trauma. It's for everyone, whether you have a baseball coach in your life you've been meaning to talk to, or another loved one. If you are thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It is entirely online. It is designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Visit betterhelp.com ones twos today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com slash ones twos. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Hi, and welcome back. Our next data point is 53,800. That is the population of the Faroe Islands. That's a small group of islands for the uninitiated north of britain and south of iceland
2: the archipelago with these 18 islands is an autonomous territory within the kingdom of denmark fishing and tourism are the two major industries here
0: you may not have heard of them but they were recently in the news because they have recently passed sanctions
2: against Russia.
0: That combination of facts, this tiny group of islands, and the geopolitics of sanctions caught my eye, and I thought we could sort of dig into the economics of the Faroe Islands. It seems to be in the spirit of the podcast, that marginal things like this can have kind of interesting windows into the world of economics. So I was thinking, Adam, you could start by giving some kind of primer on the Faroe Islands for those who are, who are unacquainted. Can you give a, a potted history of this region?
1: Yeah, so, well, so maybe get in the right mental space. It's worth remembering that extraordinary moment when the Trump administration was offering to buy Greenland off Denmark. I don't know whether people remember this, but mm. um, Greenland is, is not small by any measure. It's a gigantic slice of of land. The Pharaohs, as it were, the, the tiny cousin to Greenland and Iceland, in that cluster of you know North Atlantic um, island communities, island states, island nations, um, they go back and forth. They were originally settled by apparently by a disgruntled group of, of Vikings who <laughs> who couldn't stand the monarchy of Harold Fairhair and decided that the obvious thing to do was to get in a, in a Viking longboat and set off, you know, due west. Uh, to find somewhere better to live. Uh, The risks these people took are just extraordinary because this is the North Atlantic. This is some of the roughest, uh, most inhospitable uh, water in in the world. Um, So they've been settled really since the late 800s, the early 900s. They were part of the Kingdom of Norway, um, which was in a union with Denmark for a while. And then in 1814, they were split and Norway was transferred to Sweden. You know, the history of Scandinavia... Now we have this you know, idea of Scandinavia as this ideal of good governance and sensible kind of rational politics. And their early history isn't quite like that. It's quite dynastic. Things get moved back and forth. You know, Trump's request to buy Greenland is not quite as egregious as it sounds when When you reckon that the Faroe Islands were part of the Kingdom of Norway, which was linked to Denmark, and then in 1814, Norway was transferred to Sweden, whereas Denmark got to keep the Faroe Islands, Greenland and Iceland, and that's where they've remained ever since. They are therefore a semi-autonomous part of, of the Danish state, a community that's cut off from Denmark, obviously, it's a very, very long way away. And uh, it doesn't have an independent representation in the UN, but unlike the mother country, Denmark, it's not part of the EU either. So it exists in a sort of limbo, uh, you could say, or an advantageous offshore position between uh, Denmark and Europe.
0: Got it. Yeah. Okay. So I'm having fun picturing the the, the residents are sort of the, the descendants of these particularly surly vikings um maybe that...
1: they are they're like they're one of the most pure, amongst reasonably sized populations they're one of the most genetically homogeneous populations in the world hmm. uh, they're like 87 percent, you know from one particular group of norse men and 83 percent from one particular group of <laughs> norse women or something i mean it's incredibly homogenous yeah
0: yeah, wow. Okay. Um, so how does uh, the Faroe Islands economy work today? I mean, how do its residents make ends meet on these isolated islands? As it specialized in some particular industries over
1: time? Well, first of all, it was all basic agriculture, um, sheep above all on the islands themselves. But then from the mid to late 19th century onwards, it's fishing and it's fishing all the way down to the present day. They are per capita by far and away the most significant fishing uh, power in the world. plus of their exports are fish, fishing generates about 20% of GDP, which is essentially the size of, I don't know, they're in other countries, entire manufacturing sectors. So it it drives a a far larger part of the economy than just merely 20%. It's really the hub of of non-service employment. The Faroe Islands, like other nations, progressively extended their claims to the North Atlantic. So It's a cluster of 18 small islands which um, have a claim to Atlantic water 200 times larger than the square kilometerage of the islands themselves. And they um, also have very high-tech, highly sophisticated fishing fleets that operate in other waters around Europe. So that's really the basis of everything. The downside of this is that they are also... Traditionally addicted to some of the more ugly aspects of fishing. And notably, they have an annual festival in which they slaughter entire herds of dolphins and whales and, you know, insist that this is part of their island culture. And there's an ongoing controversy about how long this can really be tolerated. But the images of this are absolutely grim.
0: And just so I understand this, when you say they claim this big fishing zone, I mean, is that. Is there any international law about those kinds of claims or can they just sort of make that claim because they're so dependent on fishing and no one will bother them about it?
1: Um, no, it is something that's contested in international law, but generally recognized and everyone does it. And they weren't the first movers, so they followed other people. But the British famously fought a, a cod war with the Icelanders over precisely this kind of issue. So... I think that's the basis on which this is made it, it's a now generally recognized rights of states which is why for instance the french claim huge slices of the you know what we now call the indo pacific region because they have a series of you know island atoll former colonial possessions which are now incorporated into the french state as the departement d'outre mer and they each one of those extends a huge zone around it a kind of privileged economic zone which also gives you the right to mining you know and undersea exploration for oil and so on so
0: what advantages do the pharaohs derive from this kind of special relationship with denmark i mean it is technically i guess still part of denmark i mean but would the pharaohs be better off if they were just fully independent i mean or does the relationship run the other way? I mean, is it Denmark kind of deriving some material or imperial kind of advantages from having control over the Faroe Islands?
1: It's a hugely contentious issue, it turns out. So Faroe Island nationalism is a thing, and economics were a key part of this all the way back. So um, throughout the medieval period, all the way up to 1856, the uh, Danes exerted a monopoly of trade with the Faroe Islands. So the faroes weren't allowed to trade with anyone else, They were only allowed to trade with Denmark. And that's why up to the mid 19th century, they basically confined themselves to agriculture. And it's only really after the abolition of the Danish trade monopoly in 1856, as part of the general liberalisation of trade around the European world in the mid 19th century, that they turn to fishing. They then go to Britain, buy themselves some outmoded old English fishing skiffs and the pharaohs turned themselves into, you know, a major commercial fishing force. That only happened after the Danish monopoly was broken. And so a hundred years later, after World War II in 1946, there was in fact a referendum on the pharaohs about independence, and the independence party narrowly won, set about drafting a constitution. Copenhagen challenged it. It went back and forth. Then they held an election on the pharaohs, the anti-secessionist pro-Danish parties did better in the elections, shifting the balance back the other way. And ever since, the pharaohs have existed in this sort of limbo where um, they are part of Denmark, but there is a substantial body of opinion on the islands that wishes they weren't. And so they exist in this strange relationship. And every time they try and draft a constitution, Copenhagen points out to them, that it's probably illegal to draft your own constitution. They'd have to actually declare independence first before doing that. One of the reasons they don't is that though they're a very prosperous economy in a good year, they have a GDP per capita higher than, say, Britain's, for instance, they are hugely dependent on fishing. And so in the 1990s, when global fishing went into crisis, there was a huge overfishing problem in the North Atlantic. The Faroes economy tanked massively, and they became extremely heavily dependent in that period on Danish subsidies, you know, to a very, very large slice of their economy, um, 15% Fifteen percent plus of the government budget was coming from Denmark, and the government budget in the Faroes is about half of GDP. They're a proper Scandinavian, you know, society that way. If you read the websites now, you can feel this undertow of Faroes nationalism that says, "But now it's down to about three percent of GDP that is covered by the block grant, so called, that Denmark provides to the Faroes." So it's a trade-off, a little bit like it reminded me in some ways of like reading about Scottish independence, but. Um, you know, there's a clearly a nationalist pull away, there's a history of contested sovereignty, and then there are facts of economic interdependence, which are heavy, but diminishing over time in the pharaoh's case, assuming that one makes positive assumptions about the future of the fishing industry.
0: One of the things that I noticed in reading about them is that it it rains a tremendous amount there. It seems like almost every day it may rain. So, I mean, does that play any meaningful economic role? I mean, maybe... On the most basic sense, it seems to me like there's not much tourism. Is that is that fair to say?
1: Well, it does. It average apparently it rains or precipitates because it snows there as well on the on the higher ground. Two hundred and ten days out of three hundred and sixty five, so two thirds <laughs> of the time. And and uh, because of where it's located on the Gulf Stream, essentially on the Atlantic Conveyor, right? It's neither very cold nor very hot ever. So temperatures vary there between three to four degrees in the winter centigrade, so that's 37 to 39 Fahrenheit just above freezing, to a a maximum in the summer of 9 to 10 degrees Celsius or 49 to 51 Fahrenheit. Mm. So essentially, it's utterly monotonous. You have very, very little variation in temperature and constant rain.
0: So if you like it Uh, damp, you you know where to go. If If you like it damp, yeah.
1: So there's no no trees there native, so (laughs) it's just grass and so the <laughs> so the, the place is like famous for the ponies <laughs> and cows and sheep um, you know all herbivorous animals that can basically just roam free local delicacies to tempt the tourists include fermented lamb and puffins stuffed with cake. So, yes. Oh, this I is mean, quite the pitch. It might not be a gastronomic destination, but apparently it has become so popular as a tourist destination, they actually had to have like a two-day island. They closed to visitors to, to reboot. They, they, they felt so swamped by visitors that they basically closed the islands and announced that tourists would not be welcome.
0: Yeah, I don't know. It doesn't sound like a, like a honeymoon, uh, you know, necessarily. But, um, but well, you know.
1: Well, in light of one other important thing about the Faroe Islands, maybe it does.
0: Yes, exactly. I guess it does maybe bring us to our final point, which is the Faroe Islands, it turns out they have the highest birth rates in Europe. I think it's 2.5 children
1: per household. I mean, do we have any sense of why that's the case? Well, it's tempting to say that it's because there's nothing else to do there. <laughs> um... But um, the cliché deceives because, in fact, uh, female employment is amongst the highest in the world in the Faroe Islands. So there is an 82% employment rate for Faroese women. Huh. Traditionally, women have been very in very short supply on the islands. Unsurprisingly, being desirable, they emigrated away from the islands. Then, you know, uh, to avoid um, getting stuck with some Faroese fishermen and hmm. um, taking the incredible risks they had to do. And so there was a shortage, of gender imbalance. That is now much more stable than it used to be. Um, and yes, huge employment rates of ferries women. It seems like a kind of ideal version of the Nordic model in general. I mean, the birth rate is the highest in Europe, but it's not very high. It's 2.5 children per woman, which is comfortably above, but not very far above reproduction, which is 2.1. And they do that with all of the sorts of inducements that other Scandinavian countries do. So they have very good childcare. It's very easy for women and men, in fact, to have part-time jobs. They have 46 weeks of parental leave and are intending to increase that to a full year. They have tax allowances for large cars. They recently reduced the car to tax on seven-seat vehicles. Mm. Um, so they're, they're very consciously pro-family. And that, in the end, I think maybe turn out to be the most important variable here because many Scandinavian countries have those basic welfare measures in place considered really the gold standard for family policy in that respect and it doesn't produce the same birth rate results. So the main difference may in fact simply be that this is a very small society in which people live very close to each other and people still do in an important way fundamentally identify as members of families. So in a in a basic sense you are the son of or the daughter of X. And that also means that in extended family networks there is just you know abundant childcare uh, close by. So the people who live there can rely to a very large extent on extended family networks to support child rearing. And, and that on top of the generous welfare provisions is probably what accounts for this this very high number.
0: That's fascinating. And it seems to me that some of those points may not get discussed enough because exactly it's sort of this goes beyond just family policy per se. In the Faroes, it's uh, maybe easier to have a bigger family um, maybe one of these days we can do a recording uh, while eating puffin in the pharaohs that sounds pretty tempting <laughs> On the episode. Uh, as a dare at the very <laughs> least but um, yeah. okay we will, we will leave it there
1: I don't want to eat puffin yeah that's all for you Cal. I don't. they're cute you don't want to eat puffins <laughs> it's all disgusting I'll eat fish I, I want some super fresh fish I don't mind fish
0: so uh, before we close out the show, I-, I just wanted to take a second here to-, to just recognize how amazing it has been to hear all of your uh, speak pipe messages.
2: Hi, Cameron. Hi, Adam. My name is Kathy.
0: My
1: name's Tim. I'm an Aussie, but I live in California.
0: My name is Pierre and I live in Montreal. I'm a big fan of your show and I enjoy listening to it every week. Ones and Twos is, for me, the best economics podcast out there. Your podcast illuminates
1: stuff that I haven't thought about since I took Econ 101 like 15 years ago. I wanted to know if Adam could speak to the similarities in the 2020 decade to date versus the decade of the 1840s.
2: I want to ask for Adam's thoughts on how the decline in unions has affected workers in the economy. Thank you for the great show.
0: Thank you. Thank you so much. For now, just know that we are listening and we do sincerely plan to answer more of your questions very soon. So again, thank you very much. It means a lot to us uh, to hear from you. And uh, yeah, a lot of you are just really smart, so thanks. Okay, that's it for another episode of Ones and Twos. Thanks, as always, to my co-host, Adam Twos. Listeners, as always, we like hearing your feedback. Please email us at podcasts at foreignpolicy.com or tweet us at onesandtwospod. Remember, that's twos as in Adam's name, T-O-O-Z-E. And, of course, uh, remember to follow and review us uh, on your favorite podcast app ones and twos is written and edited by me cameron abadi along with adam twos it's produced by laura rossbrow tellum and rob Sachs. our social media manager is claudia tady the executive editor of fp podcast is dan efron thank you very much for listening and we will see you back in your feed next week
2: Hi, I'm Annalise Riles, professor of law at Northwestern University. I'm also an anthropologist and the host of a new podcast, Everyday Ambassador, where we give you the small tools that make big change. The idea for this show has been a long time in the making. I actually remember the exact day I started thinking about it. It was March 11th, 2011. I was in Japan conducting research on the financial markets of Tokyo. All of a sudden, I heard a loud rumbling sound and the room started shaking. Everything came crashing off the shelves. I looked out the window and I could see the skyscrapers swaying so much that they looked like they would touch. And then the sirens started going off. A tsunami was on the way. These were the harbingers of one of Japan's worst ever disasters, the meltdown of the Fukushima nuclear power plant.
0: The Japanese government now says two reactors are in partial meltdown and four more are at risk.
2: The meltdown completely turned Japan on its head. I saw hundreds of stunned office workers covered in dust walking down empty train tracks to get from the city to their homes in the suburbs. Electricity was out, internet, cell phones. Supplies flew off the shelves of stores. Geiger counters became an in-demand item, which is never a good thing. Living through a crisis of this magnitude was an inflection point for me. To prevent the next Fukushima or any of the other crises we face today, we'll have to work much more effectively across silos of expertise and national boundaries, and we'll need to harness the wisdom of everyone, from local fishers to nuclear physicists, on how the world really works and what happens when things go awry. Using this approach, I've gone on to spur countless innovations in global policy, and that's what this podcast is all about. Everyday Ambassador peels back the curtains of high-stakes leadership and gives everyone backstage access to the most powerful methods of diplomacy. In each episode, we'll break things down into deceptively simple moves that everyone can make to help build a more peaceful and sustainable world. Like giving a gift.
0: You want to make it tasteful. You want to make it thoughtful. You thought about the other individual. You thought about what their likes and dislikes are.
2: Or creating a fiction. Taking on a fictional scenario and a role outside of the one that you occupy in your day-to-day life
1: allows you to think through what you would like to have done differently
2: or just taking the time to have fun. Trying to see this as more so building long-term relationships that are going to be helpful uh, down the line when negotiations are a bit harder, as all negotiations are. Each week, you'll hear surprising stories which reveal the moves you can make to change the status quo, to find ways to connect and move things forward. So join me and become an Everyday Ambassador, coming to you this spring on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen.